This is Peter Erskine, and you are listening to Radio Richard. Radio Richard! Grammy and multi-award winning drummer and composer Peter Erskine is widely regarded as one of the world's finest musicians and educators. His 50 albums as leader are joined by playing in the iconic bands of Stan Kenton, Maynard Ferguson, Weather Report, Steps Ahead, Joni Mitchell, Steely Dan, Diana Krall, both Brecker brothers, Gary Burton and Pat Metheny, and John Schofield. But you know, that's enough about him. Let's actually listen to Peter Erskine. Peter, I am something of a drum nerd. I'm not a drummer, but I am a drum nerd. And I love all the, the stuff that most people probably think is boring, like, you know, what heads you're using and what you use to screw down the heads and what, what dampers you. I mean, I love all that stuff. And I'm fascinated by it because obviously I think it's also what you do to create your instrument. So this is all great fun for me. Good. So, I mean, the first question I want to ask you, I guess, is I've been transcribing your drum parts since, you know, the 70s. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I learned a lot about writing for drums by, by transcribing your parts and Steve Gadd parts and, and Harvey Mason's parts and stuff. I, I would say, how do they create that rhythm? You know, and, and I write out very meticulous drum parts. So this is how I learned how to do it a lot from, from listening to your playing. And would it be true to say that a lot of the jazz records that you've played on, probably not the big band stuff, but a lot of the jazz records, not that much is actually written. Well, thank you for uh, for having listened to my drumming all these years. Yes. Uh, but you're correct that uh, things are primarily left up to the imagination and discretion of the drummer, and that's uh, pretty much how uh, we drummers like it. Um, if I get a, a, a piece of music that's uh, obviously a printout of a like drum temp track, whether it's a Sibelius or a Finale or Dorico, uh, sure. something that's been used to kind of help visualize the music for the for the composer, as opposed to a drum part, mm. uh, then there's a lot of information in there that uh, I don't want to see. Right. Uh, I don't want to uh, see a fill. I just want to know what the ensemble is playing. So uh, uh, a good drum chart for me is like is like a really good map, and um, uh, because it's we're traveling in, in uh, linear sure uh, you know uh, time um, uh, I know where the piece of music starts and I know where it stops and uh, the any particular uh, or specific rhythmic events that uh, could use uh, either preparation or uh, tutti ensemble support sure uh, as well as crucial dynamic stuff so uh, you know I I I did a piece uh, with a British composer named Mark Anthony Turnage that he had originally uh, scored for classical percussionists, and, and, and yes. so, uh, two or three players were were kind of approximating a, a, a drum set. And um, I said, "This is exactly what I don't want to have to decipher." So I sent him uh, a number of of uh, big band drum parts, including uh, things that the Bob Mincer had written, right. Mendoza, uh, stuff out of the, the Basie slash Sammy Nestico book. Uh, 
uh, and uh, he got a very good sense uh, quickly uh, of of how sparse a drum part could be. Yes, and and the good the good results that 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 could come from that. As I say, I do write out drum parts, but I always say to the drummers who I work with, this is just my idea of it. You're very free to rewrite the part entirely. Uh, obviously, with a with, if I was writing a swing thing, I would write a lot of slashes because it's crazy to write out all that stuff. But what I'm interested in is if you could describe the process by which, for instance, I, I would guess that a lot of uh, jazz records that you've done, and you've done billions of them, uh, you would be handed a lead sheet, would you not? Or like if somebody brought in a tune, even to Weather Report, would say, when you were in Weather Report would, and somebody brought in a tune, what would they give you? Oftentimes there, there'd be no written music. Uh, Wayne Shorter was quite uh, meticulous in terms of, uh, <clears throat> uh, not the drum parts. Uh, he, he wrote out a very specific uh, keyboard parts uh, and in, in a florid hand. Uh, uh, which made it, uh, I think, all, all the less legible for Zavonal. Uh And Wayne also had a, a, a tendency to mix his accidentals in, 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 in within a single chord voicing, so you'd have uh -huh. sharps and flats, uh, but, but amazing harmonies. Right. Uh, and so what, what we did with almost all of Wayne's tunes until the final album, uh, that was just simply titled Weather Report. Uh, he, he had one, one tune uh, that he had a very specific idea, rhythmically what he wanted. Everything else would always be read down uh, as if the tune were a ballad. Right. And this was in part to accommodate Zavonal's having to you know, try to decipher these complex chords. And, um, and these pieces, Richard, would be maybe 11, 12, 14, 15 pages long. Wow. Uh, and Joe would be deciphering these uh, complex harmonies. And uh, as a result, we would play these songs slowly. Uh, and then uh, either Joe or Jocko would usually go, uh, hey, Wayne, you know, this, like, this thing on page eight, is, is really interesting. Let, can we focus on that? And then that would become a, almost like an ostinato, like a repeat figure. And and all of a sudden, I was like, wow, I wonder if this might have been the process with uh, with some of Wayne's music and Miles's band. I don't think so, but uh, all of a sudden, this tune would form, and then we'd start playing with tempos because uh, uh, the learning curve had been uh, reached, right, and uh, and we could start having fun with different fields. Um, so uh, much of the weather report thing was was collaborative in terms of you know trying to find something, and oftentimes the only direction I would get was you know we don't like that beat, can you come up with something else? Right, uh, sure. And uh, that happened in steps ahead. Uh, I was doing a film date uh, at Warner Brothers uh, on the Warner Brothers stage, and um, whatever approach I had taken on, on, on the queue, uh, hey, Peter, we don't like what you're doing. Can you come up with something else? Uh, you know, and, and when you have an 80-piece orchestra sitting out there, uh, you realize, well, I've pretty much got one chance uh, <laughs> here. 
Uh, and luckily, the alternative uh, whatever uh, seemed to work. The input of, of a rhythm section, if we're being watched or listened to by any writers or producers out there, um, they can often get the best out of the musicians they're working with by, uh, you know, inviting some of their creative input because absolutely and, and, and you know and it's a problem when when you when you demo stuff or you build it uh you know you can get married to the temp tracks that you've put together and sure. if somebody doesn't play it you know I, i've i've gone into some sessions where they want me to replicate uh stuff that's been programmed and i yes some of that stuff is not possible at least for me right with just two hands and two feet but on the other hand, I, as a writer, um, as I say, my approach has always been that I, being a composer and being an arranger for, you know, 45 years, I, I write stuff out. But at the same time, I also invite, when I have a brilliant player, you know, like yourself, I, I say, okay, here's what I've written. I know it's playable because, you know, I, I studied Pete Erskine's playing, so I know it's playable, but <laughs> if you have a better idea, great. You know, so I think there's a balance between those two things. I once had a student who came up to me and said, uh, you know, I'm, it took me a while, but I finally, finally figured it out. And uh, here's what you played on, on such and such an album. <laughs> uh, and, and in fact, the, the, the part he was, playing for me was a combination of, of two drum sets that I'd overdubbed. Ah. And he managed to do it all at once, and I just went, that's mm -hmm. pretty good. That's pretty good. Keep working on it. Right, right. Exactly. Well, you know, that we, a lot of times we, we don't know these things. And uh, I, I once uh, did a session with Ricky Lawson, and I, I wrote out one of his famous grooves, you know, on one of the records that I heard. And he said, you do know that, that, that I did that with two drum kits. And I said, I have no idea. He says, but, I'll, but, I'll, but I'm going to overdub it for you just the same way I did when I was doing it with the Yellow Jackets. So, you know, that was, that was his, his uh, introduction for me to uh, a whole world of uh, secrets of, of records that we love. Um, now, the, uh, the, the guy who didn't uh, need to overdub, uh, and it was so much fun to see in your in your uh, excellent video was uh, Charlie Smith, who uh, is seen playing the drums with uh, Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker, you know, that uh, version of Hot House on television. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, that that was a lot of fun to uh, to see. That. I, I think that that is a trademark of your playing uh, from all the stuff that I've listened to is the fact that number one you play the composition rather than playing the drums. And you're always very aware. And that's another thing I've started talking about is the way that you work out your own parts. I mean, you're, you, can't, you can't really do that unless you've done, you've got a library in your head of, of genres and of records and of performances. And you've obviously built up from a very early age uh, you've, you had fantastic teachers, but you also had a fantastic ear to be able to not only listen, but listen actively. And, and I think I'm right in saying that, that your frame of reference has created 
the drummer that you are and the musician that you are because you you don't just do stuff because it's there you do stuff because of the music and and would you say that that's kind of the way you think well i would say that you just you used a remarkable phrase uh listening actively you know interactive listening uh listening with intention uh, i mean any kind of listening is fine and if you want to listen to music while you're doing the dishes or mowing yeah lawn yeah but going for a walk whatever that's fine but when you really sit down to to listen to something and then sure. uh and, and that's more or less what i did ever since i was a kid i mean i just loved listening to to music um and uh you know back when you and i were first listening to music we we had vinyl lps um and uh, each and liner time, notes <laughs> and liner notes with pictures uh Especially on the gatefold albums, I love those. Mm. Uh, but there would uh, uh, there would be maybe fifteen to eighteen minutes of music per side, um, and when you bought that record, that was your listening treat. You could maybe rotate it with other things, but generally you would really like listen to that over and over, um, and uh, so you get you get to know the music very well. So uh, you know, I I I. I not only knew everything the drummer was playing, I knew everything the bass player was playing, exactly. everything the pianist was playing. And then you sort of start to get a sense of counterpoint, uh, balance, not just musical dynamic balance uh, 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 in terms of volume, but, but the, the, the balance of elements. Without that kind of active listening and without that building up that frame of reference in your, in your brain of what has gone before, and what the possibilities and options are, then what can your choices be based on? And, and that's why I always I tell my students, you know, listen actively, listen with a notepad. I even when I was a kid and I didn't know what I was doing, I was I always had a little notepad saying, oh, what is this? What's this thing? I better check out what 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 on earth is he doing there? So so that's you know, that, that's something I try to encourage in, in my students and and I'm, I'm sure that you always did that. It's, it's, it seems like you you have maybe 12 records you can refer to when you are presented with a piece of music and you say, ah, well, hmm, I could do this and I could do this. You have loads of options open to you and then you your taste, which is developed from that, tells you what to do. Yes, but with the caveat that you, you really have to listen to the music at hand. And, and so, uh, even even with the best of intentions, I I I, I could be approaching it with a, with a big blind spot, or a bias of some sort. Uh, and the other things are uh, uh, just to add to what you said is, uh, let's say if 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 it's a trio, the piano, bass, and drums. Um, there's actually a quartet because the room is the fourth member. Uh -huh. So whether it's a, a the room where we are recording in or the room where the concert is taking place. And that will determine a lot of choices. Uh, what works in uh, a jazz club may not work so well uh, in a concert hall that used to be a church, let's say. Uh, above all other things, so listening is, is really, uh, you know, I tell my, my students, Richard, I, I say, we, we, we could reduce the four years of study here at the Thornton School of Music. You know, I teach at University of Southern California. Yes, we could we could reduce it to to about fifteen seconds, uh, <laughs> and they say, "What's that?" I say, 
It's as simple as this. Play what you'd like to hear. If the musician doesn't have a, a frame of reference uh, in terms of listening, then that then that's a, a, a trickier. Do you advise them of stuff to listen to? Do you do? You, I mean, you must do that. You must say, well, oh, yeah. look, here, here's a bunch of stuff you would really need to know about and listen to all this and come back tomorrow. Uh, this week, we've been listening to uh, this. This was very interesting. Uh, uh, Dave Tuff uh, playing alongside Chubby Jackson. Uh, it's an old Woody Herman big band tune called Goosey Gander. Nice. Uh, and just some of the things going on in the rhythm section uh, were a revelation for me. I heard them for the first time last week. I was like, whoa. Uh, and that led us to listening to Tiny Khan, uh, uh, a great drummer uh, whose name is not mentioned nearly enough. And then uh, there was a link to Denzel Best, the right. drummer who also wrote uh, Move and, and right. We. Um, uh, and then naturally that kind of uh, took us to Don Lamond. Uh, so not only are they getting a, uh, uh, a chance to like, wow, this, the way this stuff all connects is, is pretty magical. Right. Um, in, a, in a grander sense, Richard, I think that by, okay, let's like Dave Tuff, for example. I remember when I was young, um, and I think it was in the uh, uh, much lauded uh, Encyclopedia of Jazz of, of, of Leonard Feathers. Uh, I, I may be incorrect. It might have been something I'd read in Downbeat as a kid, but somewhere uh, Dave Tuff was, uh, uh, his alcoholism was kind of referred to as being a contributing factor to his early demise. Uh, and he slipped and, and, and hit his head uh, and, and then died as a, as a result of that injury, I think. Um, and uh, so I, oh, he was a heavy drinker. And uh, in fact, the, the, the poor guy suffered from epilepsy. Oh. Um, and uh, when he slipped and fell, it was a, it was a snowy, icy uh, day or evening in New York City and he slipped on a patch of ice. So uh, my thought was, and, and, and I sensed it quite palpably yesterday in my teaching studio, is that, you know, these, these musical uh, warriors of sorts, they, they're granted uh, 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 immortality if we're present enough to remember them, if we're able to... Uh, tell the correct story about them, if we're able to listen to them, and then they're alive in our shared consciousness. Right. And, and for me, that, that's a form of heaven. And, I, and, and so I feel as a, as a teacher, I want to grant that, uh, that presence in heaven to as many of, of the jazz warriors. The students all seem to respect that. And I think they right. like that idea of, okay, so that then makes them a participant, not just, hey, you know, listen to this. That's and that is button. exactly, Peter, that's exactly why I'm doing this Radio Richard thing. Because I had done all these interviews uh, with the BBC, and I love talking to musicians about their ideas. And I thought, well, the general public, and especially musicians, need to hear these ideas, these 
these concepts, which these wonderful, brilliant uh, artists have have come up with. And so that's why I do the Radio Richard, the same reason. Good. Well, I hope I hope I'm not going to be dead. Uh, in the, in the, uh, you don't have to be dead to be on Radio Richard. <laughs> Okay, uh, you just have to have a beard, which you both, both you and I have. Uh, excellent. Um, um, let me ask you about something else that you touched on that, that uh, things that influence your playing at a particular time. For instance, it's not just the composition, it's not just the room, but also another thing that will influence you is the other players. Now, let's say you're playing with somebody like Chuck Birdcoffer, who I had the great honor to play with uh, a couple of times. I mean, his time is just frightening. It's, it's, it's so beautifully there. But what do you do as a drummer if you're playing with a, a bass player who's not bad, not a bad bass player, but has a bit of a pushy feel on the time or a bit of a play slightly behind the beat on side? What do you do? Uh, well, when I worked with Chuck, the first thing I did was I, I dressed him as Mr. Burkhofer. Good. Always, always cracked him up. Um, we have a saying at, at USC. Um, um, there's no negotiation when it comes to time. So uh, I try not to budge. Um, if I feel, oh, they want to play it back a little bit, and then, zoom, the thing's just going to slow down. So whether a bass player is, is pushy or whether they're a little behind the beat, I just put it where, you know, here's, this is what was counted off and, and, and this is where, you know, I'm going to play it. And are you um, able to, to alter their playing by doing that? Yeah, generally. I mean, you know, nobody plays bad on purpose. No. Uh, and so sometimes uh, uh, an open discussion might, uh, might be warranted and, and uh, generally, uh, hey, uh, you're, you're, you're playing behind the beat or you're playing. Uh, there was a terrible, uh, 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 funny but terrible joke, practical joke that was played on Shelley Mann and Ray Brown. They were finishing up a film score and the way it works with film scores is you start with the largest ensemble, the beginning of the scoring process, and you finish with the smallest. So it was the last day the last part of the session, everyone else has been sent home, and there's one cue for bass and drums. And somebody in the control room thought, hey, wouldn't it be funny if we give Ray a click at one one tempo and then we give Shelly a click at a slightly different tempo, just a little bit different. So they do, and they start, and, and they gave Ray the, the faster click. And Ray, you know, uh, uh, played on the front side of the beat. Um, and they give shot, and, and quickly it falls apart, and uh, they can hear it. And, uh, but they're not hearing each other's click; they're only hearing no, their own. No. And and, um, and pretty quickly the joke spiraled out of control because, hey, man, it's not the first time you've done that. And Ooh. and and, um, and then they had to run out and try to like, hey, wait, wait, wait! It, it was a joke. It was a joke. Um, Boy, that, that is that is one of the cruelest stories I've ever heard. <laughs> that was a bad joke, actually. Very bad. Uh, Oscar, Oscar Castro Neves told me that, uh, hmm. and and I, well, I have no reason to doubt its veracity. But, uh, you know, uh, I remember one time. Now this is this isn't addressing tempo so much, Richard. But uh, one time with steps, uh, we were playing somewhere, and the tendency is like, hey man, you know, you 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 you, you give a. a a bit of a, 
a dirty look or an evil glance that you feel that they're making you not sound as good as you normally would. Right. They're somehow sabotaging your effort. And if you come off and attack somebody, uh, uh, you know, they'll naturally get defensive. Um, my father was a psychiatrist, so uh, I remembered a, a good piece of advice he told me once. He said, you know, you always have to give something to someone before you attempt to take something else away. Very true. So anyway, one night I, I came off the bandstand and I, I said, said to the band, I said, hey, everybody, I'm sorry. I don't know what's going on, but I feel like I'm really letting you all down. I'm not playing uh, this, that, or the other. And I, I just, I apologize. And then instantly, Mike Brecker went, no, man, it's not you, it's me. Uh, I have, you know, I got a phone call. Oh, well, geez, uh, you know, and another guy. And then we all right. kind of like either looked at each other, shook, or even had a, a little band hug. And the next set was great. It's a way of clearing clearing the, the bad air out of the room yes um now it it is okay to talk about musical concepts now not time related so much but uh my first occasion to to play with miroslav vitus uh, right. i'm in europe i've flown over and it's miroslav myself uh joachim kuhn was playing piano and uh michelle portal and christophe lauer were the two uh, woodwind players and uh, and we we're running down the tune, and pretty early on, you know, and I sense that he's testing me. So I just, I make a conscious decision right there. I say, I'm going to ignore him. I'm not tempted to play that, and who, not my idea, and he can do what he wants. So, because I'm trying to find the horizon of the tune. Sure. Anytime I play something, I'm like listening. and So we finish the tune, and he comes over to me. He goes, hey, man. And I look up. He says, stand up so I can give you a hug. <laughs> okay. So he gives me a hug. He goes, thank you for not going with me. He said, so many European drummers, you know, they go with me. Now, this this is what he said. He said, he said you, that's why I love you American drummers, because you guys just don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah I'm, well well that is that is a, a really of course you did that naturally and you knew that it was the right thing to do but it is true that i if if one player wants to play around with the time once somebody else follows them that the joke is dead because a joke is only funny if it has something to be that you know funny against. funny against um Exactly, and, and 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 everyone learns that. And and sorry to interrupt, but uh, you know, Mark Johnson and I, yes, and uh, and and the trio we, uh, that we uh, you know, played in uh, that was under yes. John Abercrombie's name. Yes, um, you know, sometimes I I be I be playing, boom 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 boom, and I'd hear Mark go boom 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 and it worked because I, I I didn't go with him, and we would talk about like, hey, if if you hear me, you know, start to rubber band with the time a little bit, uh, just keep doing what you're doing. Uh, and so we had a lot of fun doing mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. we, you know, I would do it, he would do it, and we instinctively knew when somebody was just trying to pull on the on the fabric. Yes. Uh, just enough 
to create a, a little a little tension release moment within everything else that was going on. And 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 so we would do post mortems after gigs. We would we would listen to other you know bands like rhythm sections at jazz festivals and go like, you hear that? That was hip. Or you hear that? Right. That was not hip. Right. Right. And so we were we were trying to refine as well as define you know. Uh, our, our hipness sensibility. Right. That also reminds me of what you were talking about when, when, when you were doing the polymetric patterns uh, over a certain groove. If everybody else goes with you, you're dead in the water. And, and I wrote a book with a, a drummer in England called Polymetrics for Non-Drummers. And the whole point of this is to show other musicians what drummers do all the time. But I, I made a lot of jokes in the book about don't go with them or the music will sound terrible and you'll never get paid. Uh, but it's, it's very important. I mean, I noticed uh, during, in the Miles band with Herbie, uh, Herbie was doing those polymetric things all the time on the piano, but, but uh, Tony Williams wasn't, was giving him something straight to play over because otherwise it wouldn't have been uh, effective, I think, guess is the word. Yeah. It's tricky. I mean, some, some of the Miles records, the, the whole rhythm section will, go together um i did that early on in, in weather report you know I'm, I'm playing in duet with wayne shorter and i would pinch myself every night what am i doing to be so lucky to, to, to be able to play in duet with with wayne sure every night but okay i got the gig so i'm doing it and um uh, it's this tune called black market do 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 and wayne's playing uh we're listening to the recording. They're they're mixing the album. It's just Zavano, myself, and the engineer in the room. And Joe was standing by the speakers, and I stood next to him, and we're listening. And Joe turns to me at one point, and goes, "Sounds good." So I'm, all right. And then Wayne does this hemiola figure, like do 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 little sequencing. Right. So I, you know, I catch two or three of them. I'm listening. Hey, I'm a good musician. And when that moment comes up on the tape, Zavon will turn to me with a really sour look. And he said, too bad you had to do that. <laughs> and it puzzled me until Wayne said it to me once in rehearsal. I was Mickey Mousing him. And he turned around and I said, don't do that. Okay. So, uh, you know, I learned not to. And I, I developed a... a a very strong sense not to but i was on tour uh, not so many years ago in sweden and uh morning after a gig i'm in the breakfast room i'm enjoying my breakfast my coffee and the bass player comes in and goes hey good morning uh, i said yeah join me please he goes thanks he goes did you, did you hear about the fight last night and I went, no what what happened so apparently some of the musicians were in the bar um and uh, one of the, I think it was a trumpet player, uh, had, a, had a bit, well, they're all drinking too much, but uh, he started complaining loudly that I wasn't listening, obviously wasn't listening to, to him because I wasn't catching his figures. And another guy said, of course he's listening to you. And he's, of course he's not playing those figures. That, that's mm -hmm. such a corny idea. Right. And then that prompted this whole animated uh, argument that they had. Right. Uh, and I said, oh, thanks. Uh, you know, because uh, he was sticking up for me because the bass player right. knew exactly where I was coming from. And so it's not to everybody's taste. Some people, uh, you know, sometimes with, with, with Bob Mincer doing a big band thing, uh, 
uh, and the horns had like a. Uh, so I would do. Ah, uh, you know, I I anticipated it. Yeah. Uh, or I would play it after, but I, th I think it was more of an anticipation. And and just before we tracked it, Bob went, "Oh yeah, Pete, you mind playing that with the band?" <laughs> sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I should show you. I should give you a quick tour of my studio, though. Should yeah, I, I would absolutely love that. Uh, now, uh, of course, with the uh, with the apps, it doesn't look very fuzzy at the moment. I don't see any fuzz on it. Oh, the, the, the fuzzy music. The name came from the the concept of of fuzzy logic. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Right, right exactly. Here. Exactly. This is the iPad. I have a couple of iPads here, and. And this is wow. my whole kind of control center. Man. And uh, when I switch cameras, I use these uh, Blackmagic ATEM devices. Wow. And I have two computers at work here. This single keyboard and and uh, smart mouse can control. Uh, that's my Zoom or Internet Connect computer. And then over there, uh, well, I call it the Pro Tools computer, but that's nice. where I have uh, Luna because uh, I have all universal audio devices and, and and so we find uh, uh we were experiencing the least amount of latency there's my marimba that oh, i yes. play nearly enough an old vintage rogers drum set and a nice. very nice yamaha piano there um so uh anyway uh, lovely the thank you of modern technology yes i know you're much more high tech than i am i i, I must say but uh well uh, thank you for the compliment i don't know if that's true because you've uh, produced uh, some incredibly sophisticated recordings. Uh, but what I did have to do when the pandemic hit, uh, I turned to my colleagues at school. I said, look, we're four miles down the road from Hollywood. Yes. And, and if we can't put together a more compelling video teaching presentation than some school in the Midwest, we have no, we have no business doing this. Not to demean any schools in the Midwest. I, I just- No, 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 were, of course not. They were the standard. I went to school in Indiana, so I, I right, love the Midwest, and I went to high school, Interlochen Arts Academy. Nice. Um, and you know, I love America, but thank you. Uh, but we, I, I like how we do things at, at USC, and so this was, uh, uh, it was a lot of work, uh, you know, figuring out latency issues and the, the tension between the two and the three. That's yeah. That's the whole thing. That's the beauty of of, of the music, uh, not just clave, but uh, the, the you know what is what is swing. Indeed. Um, and uh, you don't have to go. Uh, uh, you don't have to stray too far from you know some of the early Beatles records. I mean, Ringo's playing uh, uh, whether it's on the hi hat, excuse me, or the floor tom, the, that mercy beat. You know, it's got a yes. nice swing to it. Yes. Um, so a lot of the early rock and roll and rhythm and blues stuff was all coming out of jazz. And, you know, we have a, uh, uh, basically it's an introduction to drum set course, uh, similar to the piano proficiency model in other right. conservatories. And uh, it's a required course for all of the pop and jazz non-drumming students to take. Right. So they not only learn how to play the instrument, but they get a, uh, uh, an appreciation as well as a uh, practical history of the role of the drums right um in the development of of uh, black american music sure uh, and the other the other thing that 
that we were delighted to discover was that once uh, you know some guitarists, singers, songwriters, uh, keyboard players, uh, bass players, whatever, would take the course, their combos got better. The pop department realized pretty quickly, like, uh, and at the time it was a very far-sighted uh, uh, educator named Chris Sampson was. Uh, he was the guy that created the the pop program, and and yes. he said he said I'm requiring this because right. the 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 bands are demonstrably better. Yes. Uh, well, I think that's fantastic, and and uh, certainly it's something that I addressed as well in in this book here uh the invisible artist I, I sent that to you right yes yeah great so one of the things I, I i wanted to show was how how much jazz had influenced popular music pop music and how how some of those drummers also contributed to the the development of what we call rock drumming or pop drumming or soul drumming uh, so that's one thing. The other thing I'd love you to just comment on is when talking about the history of the drums, I'm fascinated by the history of drum construction. So, uh, and I'll tell you why I say that. Um, Danny Gottlieb told me a, a story uh, about how when he joined Mantram, they said to him, we, we love your playing, but we want you to play a vintage kit. And when, it, when, when he joined? When he was with Manhattan Transfer. Oh, Manhattan Transfer. Okay. Yeah. So when when he joined that band, they said, "We love your playing, but we'd like you to play a vintage kit because we're singers, and there's just too much banging going around, and and we like and this kit that we have is quieter, and we'd like you to play it if you don't mind." And he played it, and he said, "You know, he was a little bit surprised by the by the request, but he said the great thing about playing a, a quieter kit was that." He could play out more, but not offend anybody and not get in the way of the singers because it was more of a acoustical instrument. And as drum construction is, has progressed through the years, drums have gotten louder and they had to in order to com compete with rock and roll. So I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that question. I will not concur uh, that drums have necessarily gotten louder. I mean, there, there are some drums that have uh, perhaps been uh, designed to to maximize volume output um and there are things that uh, uh that can be done in terms of uh, choosing a material thickness of the shell right uh, possibly the you know the, the bearing edge and then the <clears throat> design and, and all these things uh come into play but uh, okay old drum set here's an old here's an old drum set over here. Yeah, you pointed to that. I want you to talk about it a little. Yeah, that old Rogers kit there. Um, so that that was a kit that Steve Maxwell, who's a wonderful, he owns two drum shops. Uh, he does seem to come across some amazing instruments. Right. Uh, and he always demonstrates them. And, and so uh, in this age of, of purchasing things, uh, you know, long distance. Yes. Uh, you, you hear a drum, you go, wow, that's great. Mm -hmm. um, these had never been played. They were sitting in the basement of a music store for over 50 years uh, in, uh, uh, in, in a suburb of, of Chicago. And they, you could see they'd never been played. And he said, I'm not going to play them. The first person to play them is going to be the person that buys the kit. Because the, the, the 
they're amazing. And uh, so I wanted to have them. So what is it about an old drum set? Well, number one, it's it's old growth wood. Uh, there was a lot more wood, I think, to, to cut down back in the early 60s compared to nowadays. Mm -hmm. uh, forestry practices were not uh, just nearly as predatory or whatever the word would be. Um, mm -hmm. there, just, there wasn't as much demand uh, for lumber maybe as, as, as later years would would change the landscape there. But uh, also, uh, this is uh, wood, now part of an instrument that has aged for 50 years. So you have a, a, a different type of tree and you have a, a wood product that's been um, either allowed or subjected to to, a, to an aging process. You know, I think the science of making drums has probably gotten better, the accuracy of the, of the, of the machine work. For the most part, you would think it, it could only get better. For me, I, I, I don't hear I don't hear the instrument in terms of loudness, Richard. Maybe that's why the, the equation wasn't quite working. Because for me, it's all about tone. Uh, an old drum set will just have a tone. In, uh, and, and the reason I was so attracted to Tama drums in my career, I've, I've, I've been commercially uh, associated with, with uh, four different brands of drums. I started off playing Slingerland drums with the Kenton Band and Maynard Ferguson Band including the, the first uh, year or so, year or two with Weather Report. And then I switched to Yamaha drums for 25 years. And then when you see drummers moving around, it's often just, a, a, you know, they, they get into a, a, a spat with somebody in uh, artist relations or management. They say, that's it, I'm changing drum companies. And so I, I left Yamaha in a bit of a huff and, and, and it was a bit of a, a impulsive move into the welcome arms of, of uh, Drum Workshop, DW, and... It was great. They were right up the coast. It was a lot of fun, and they had never really uh, spent too much time dipping their toes into the jazz waters. So it was mm -hmm. gratifying to be part of that. But I was missing something, and I was not a faithful husband in that. I, 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 here I am. I'm buying an old Slingerland kit. I bought an old Rogers kit. I was looking for something, and uh, and then Tama drums. Uh, uh, this is my unscientific, just purely subjective response. They're like this perfect combination of, of what I was finding in both the old Slingerland and old Rogers kids. So there's just a tonal quality. Yes. Uh, and, and you know how it is. If you sit down uh, at a piano or you pick up a guitar and it has a tone, it instantly makes you want to play differently. And, you know, what the first time I, I played a Tama, a little bebop kit, I, I, I was, wow, this is really good. And I decided to take him to this gig that night and invited my wife to come listen and, and didn't tell her anything beyond that. I just, I'd like you to come hear the band tonight. And she recognized it was, was not my drum set. And she came up to me, Richard, on the intermission. She said, I really like the way these drums are making you play. Well, that nails it. <laughs> that nailed it. I said, that's yeah. it. And, and I upset a few uh, apple carts in the process of, of, of switching. But, you know, uh, I feel I'm set for life uh, uh, at this late stage of, of things, but I've, I've got I've got the drum set I couldn't be happier with. I've, I've been playing Zildjian cymbals uh, all my life, um, and I'm coming up to 50 years as an official signed artist with them. Nice. Uh, and, um, and the drum heads uh, are a Remo coded ambassador, just same heads I played when I was a kid. Um, and the drumsticks are made by Vic first. So uh, with everything else going on in the world, it's nice that at least those few things I don't have to think or worry about. <laughs> the thing is, I just want to ask you one more question, if I may. And it's something that you touched on in your book. And you also 
touched on it uh, earlier on when you talked about your father being a psychiatrist. Uh, <laughs> um, personalities that you come into contact with it, as a musician. Now, to me, you, you're both your playing and just talking to you, you're a really measured, considered, thoughtful, studious kind of guy. And yet you've been able to work with some musicians who might be considered to be of extreme personalities perfectly beautifully. And there was something you said in your book, which was great. I, I laughed when I saw it. Geniuses, even boorish ones, get wide latitude in my book. Uh, elaborate, please, Mr. Erskine. <laughs> well, um, uh, you know, it, it's funny because uh, either members of my family or, or some of my new friends in New York, um, uh, like when I was be be becoming more closely acquainted and uh, uh, with Don Grolnick, for example, uh, but I'm still working with Weather Report, and Jocko would say something. Uh, and and Dom would was was would be shocked, and he'd look at me, and I said, I said I'm, Don, I'm sorry. It kind of goes in one ear out the other with half the things these guys say, you know. I, um, and and so I would I would sometimes look for the kernels of of, of truth or wisdom, uh, but realize that a lot of uh, yeah, like Zavinal, a lot of what he's you know there there was this uh, delightful if sometimes malicious a uh, bit of uh, Viennese humor uh, <laughs> yes. and, and and I think Viennese humor can can be uh, can have a sharp edge to it yeah I, yeah, I mean the only way to survive uh, being in that band was was uh, to, to, to do the best you could not to take things personally the, the other thing that I would often remind myself is that these guys know more about this than I do so uh, I think I'm gonna have to put up with some of this stuff in order for me to get to the level I want to get at. And I wasn't thinking career-wise. I was thinking, no. you know, education-wise. There's, I, I have not yet figured out how to play this music. If I just say, you know what, I don't need this, I'm going home, I'm right. denying myself the chance to learn. I mean, I, this, is, this is still like university for me. That combined with, uh, thanks to my father, I think I had a pretty good sense of self and and enough confidence that a big band drummer needs. I mean, you know, when I joined the, the Kenton band, I was 18. Exactly. And, and it was just, you know, it was always, you know, these drummers listening. Yes. Uh, that was one of the hot gigs, you know, and why, why was this kid doing it and not them? Why did right, they? Sure. And I was aware of that oftentimes. And, and, uh, so I, you know, I just tried to do the best I could. I always showed the utmost respect to my elders, but you know, I, I, I had a little bit of a, a, a not cockiness, but a, you know, a band needs to feel that the drummer owns the situation. Now, oh, absolutely. We were talking about trumpet players. I, I, I remember uh, somewhere in the Midwest uh, went into the first rehearsal, and um, for some reason, the the lead trumpet player decides he's going to bust my balls. So it was almost like a hazing kind of thing, and it was the kind of thing that I easily could have taken legitimate offense at what he had said. I just, uh, you know, I did the, the kind of uh, uh, the, the martial art move of just using using their their strength uh -huh. to my advantage. And, right. and I, I doubled down on the joke about me. 
uh-huh. which which caught him off guard because he right, expected right. me to push back. Uh-huh. And and then he looked at me and he kind of just smiled. And I yeah I said yeah I mean you know I'm happy to to play it any way you want. But meanwhile let's let's rehearse this fucking music. Okay. Yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. I've been in those situations obviously many times before and was interested in the way you dealt with it because it's very similar to the way that I've dealt with those types of things. I've had to work with some impossible creatures, but but uh, you also made the point that you can't let them know that they're they're testing you. They're they're kind of pushing it and seeing where you'll go with it. And here's here's the best story on that. And uh, this came to me by way of the late Victor Bailey. Uh, he had just joined Steps. We're playing uh, his first gig is in Long Beach, California. It was the Queen Mary Jazz Festival. So we're on the on the dock or the port, whatever they call it, adjacent to the Queen Mary. And the dressing rooms are all these like uh, star wagon vehicles, like trailers. Uh, and he's trying to find a buddy of his that plays in Miles' band. And he asked someone backstage, and you know, because Victor has the pass to be backstage, and and they pointed to, oh, he's he's probably there. So Victor knocks on the door, and he was surprised when Miles Davis opened the door. And Miles, you know, kind of hisses, like, what do you want? And he goes, I'm looking for uh, my friend, you know, Bill or whoever. Mm -hmm. And Miles goes, well, he's not here. Quit bothering me. (laughs) And he he closes the door. But before the door can close, Victor remembered, he, he told me, he said, I... I, you know, I learned what, what Joe and Wayne taught me about Miles. So Victor says, hey, man, I'm not bothering you. I'm just looking for my friend Bill, <laughs> whatever the guy's name was. And the door slowly opens back up. Miles sticks his head out, looked at Victor, smiled, and said twice, he said, you can play. You can play. <laughs> So, you know, Victor sensed, hey, Miles is just, you know, he's a, he's like a shark bumping me with his nose. Uh-huh. Uh, so he just gave it a little little uh, respectful uh, bop back on the nose. And then Miles, uh, okay, man, yeah, you, you can play. Uh, one other Miles story, if I may. Oh, uh, please. I don't, know, I don't really have license to tell these because uh, this is sort of third uh, hearsay. Supposedly, Daryl Jones uh, was playing something and, and looks over at Miles on this tune. It was a funk fan. And Miles yelled something at him. So he adjusts the volume one way and looks up. Miles yells again. So he oh, must have meant the other way. So he adjusts the volume differently. Miles says the same thing again. So now he starts walking over and now he's changing, playing less, still the same thing, playing more. Still same thing. Until he finally got close enough. And what Miles was telling him was, was <laughs> dig my new shoes. <laughs> <sighs> well, that's, well, what, what can you do? <laughs> you can't win. <laughs> Got to dig his new shoes, I guess. Yeah. Um, this has been very fun. And Absolutely. I, I, I don't know if it's been the greatest interview in the history, as you say oh, in think, your book. I think it was. Well, great. I've really enjoyed it too. And I'm, I'm super grateful 
uh, to you for for making the time to do this and so great to have you play for the show and and can't thank you enough well thank you richard i'm a fan and i really appreciate that you invited me on um and uh if you want to talk about uh uh old drum sets we should do that okay definitely man. all right okay thank you very much thanks very much okay radio richard like share subscribe even donate radio richard be informed be amazed be inspired